Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Escape Your Boring Job Stories. My name is Ivana and today I have opportunity to talk to my colleague Ralph Kubli. Ralph and I have been working together for a little bit more than a year and Ralph works in CVVC and he's in touch with a lot of startups. He meets a lot of startup founders and he just knows a lot of people. So today I wanted to talk to him about entrepreneurship. So Ralph, welcome to my podcast. Please introduce yourself and tell us about what exactly is it that you do. Thanks. Yeah, my name is Ralph Kubli. I was born in Switzerland. I went to school here in Switzerland and university. Immediately after I finished my master's studies, I left for the U.S. and I worked in the U.S. for about 18 years in uh, industrial environments, companies, chemicals last, uh, where I managed some business units. And then in 2014, I joined the startup world again, I would say. I'll say that in a second why. 2014, I joined an artificial intelligence startup in the United States. It was actually a Swiss startup and I developed the US markets for them. And in 2016, I came across crypto and uh, really started to be interested in, in what this all means, Bitcoin and Ethereum and what it could mean for the world. And then I returned to Switzerland to the Crypto Valley and built companies and help founders build companies here in the Crypto Valley. And I say return to the startup scene and to technology because I did code HTML between 1994 and 1996. So I built web pages early in the days of the web. And then I completely abandoned it and then I returned in 2014. Today I work at a venture capital firm and we basically invest in early stage startups that build business models which are enabled by blockchain. As I mentioned, you do meet a lot of startup founders because before coronavirus, you went also to a lot of events and you get pitched a lot of ideas. You talk to a lot of people. So how do you actually evaluate startup ideas? How do you know if an idea has a potential? Well, it's a big question. So let's just say the startup founders, of course, need to have a healthy dose of realism. What can be achieved within a certain period of time uh, with limited resources most of the time? It's very rare that you just get enough money and you can build whatever you want. Even if you have money, you need to have the right people with you. Maybe co-founders or founders have maybe intimate knowledge of a business area, but then they need the technology to come along. That's critical. There's always a resource lacking, of course, when you start a company. So having a realistic assessment of what you can achieve within a limited amount of time with limited resources is very important. But of course, you need to have vision as well. So that's sometimes also what people say is different from a European approach to a US approach, where in the US, you know, you can get funded with really big ideas and fundamental transformation. And here in Europe, that's probably more difficult. Uh, but you should have a vision for the industry and the problem that you're trying to solve. Typically, venture capitalists that were successful tell you that it has to be a really big problem, you know, in order to really matter. I'm not necessarily of that opinion. It can be a you know limited problem as well in a very specific industry, but still bring a lot of improvements and be quite valuable. Yeah, and I mean, the team needs to know the industry and certainly know whom to call and whom to see or at least find the right investors that help them scale around the solution that they want to build with the right connections and the right team. When you get pitched an idea, do you actually already know immediately, okay, this can work or not? Or do you actually take time and you really think about this later on? That really depends on the industry. So of course, now where we invest, so at CBVC in this blockchain environment, Sometimes it's difficult for us to immediately see what the path to monetization is, for example. Mm -hmm. that's, that's quite important because 
we want to invest in founders and in companies that build applications that have realistic time span to find customers and make some money. You will also find investors that are very patient and invest in your idea or in your company because the tech takes a very long time to develop. So I think that's difficult to say. But going back to your question, do we know immediately? No, we don't know immediately unless you know the industry very well where this founder or this team wants to build a solution or wants to really change how the business is done. I think that's important. And I mean, we invest now in early stage. So by definition, we are quite broad in the industries that we invest in. But of course, you will find investors that know their industries very well. And they also know the path to either monetization or to not necessarily exits, but to future rounds of investment very well. And they can judge that very quickly in a first or in a second meeting where we invest in the stages that we invest in. You know, we may have one or two more discussions with teams to really understand what is the blockchain aspect and how would an industry really be changed and how realistic is it that the business model really will work out. Yeah, and also in the industry in which we work in blockchain, you really need to sometimes use your imagination to understand how these solutions are going to work, actually, how they can solve the real problems that we are facing. We are here in Switzerland and we are active in the Swiss startup industry. How would you describe Swiss startup industry? How is it for founders who are here in Switzerland? Which resources are available to them? And also in terms of education, in terms of funding, in terms of meeting investors, how would you describe the climate here? It's relatively easy to reach people that can invest in rounds up to two or three million Swiss francs, right? If you're looking for smaller rounds and you get started, I think Switzerland is not a bad place to find investors. There's a lot of angel investors. There's a lot of smaller pockets of very specialized investors in sustainability, for example, or in finance, SIGTIC is one of them, or in natural science and certainly you know, around research projects like ETH and some of the universities, EPFL, there's ample opportunity to find small amounts of money in forms of grants, not necessarily even investments, but in forms of grants to get started and to get something done early. It may not be quick, but it's there and you can find it. The challenge for Switzerland really is that once you go beyond this early stage, four or five million, you want to raise, it becomes more and more difficult to find money. It has improved a bit, certainly around med tech and biotech. There's a lot more money available now, also from founders and from family offices that have been very successful in the past and now reinvest basically some of these profits. And then of course, the pharma giants. And there's good infrastructure, for example, in Basel, there's a really good infrastructure on even a non-equity basis to get accelerated in some of these environments. For like any round between 5 and 15 million, it's very difficult. Why is it more difficult to raise more money here in Switzerland? There's not that many funds are out there. There's not that many VCs out there that invest in this ticket size. You know, later in larger tickets, you have private equity firms that are quite abundant. If you're a startup and produce either some kind of cash or you have a good growth rate, it's not that difficult to find money for larger rounds. The question then becomes, do you find the market here for your larger rounds? And the answer to that most of the time is no. So you have to be really ready and think about in which international markets you expand 
and how you staff there and how you guarantee success in the implementation of your business model. I think that's a big challenge for Swiss founders because Switzerland is very insular and uh, not that many people have spent a lot of time outside of Switzerland, except for the people that of course come to Switzerland and work in mm -hmm. Switzerland. But you know, Swiss founders, they tend to forget that other markets are much more demanding and work differently and you know and have to be tackled differently, even though they may speak the language French or Italian or English. So that's a big shortcoming of them. And what about education? Do you feel that there is enough opportunities for people who are just starting out to get information that they need and to learn how to start with their startup? Yeah, I believe so. Obviously, not all these resources need to be consumed in Switzerland only, right? I mean, you have outlets like Techstars or large VCs, early stage VCs that have huge amount of resources, the way you can really learn about how you should start your company and what you have to pay attention to. Of course, in Swiss context, I would say you can easily find resources that help you understand how you can find a good co-founder. You know, somebody you really, really like in our program as well is this book called Co-Founding in the Right Way, if I'm not mistaken, by Jana Nevrelka, for example. Uh, so these are good resources. Then there's a lot of law firms that have good resources. Then, of course, some of the larger universities have a lot of resources for founders which are useful for people that also are not necessarily at these universities, right? EPFL, ETH, there's a lot of opportunity. Usually there are also a lot of startup events and you can always go to the startup events and meet other yes. people, um, co-founders or investors or mentors. I really feel that there is really a lot going on in terms of the startup scene here in Switzerland. And the challenge of these startup scenes is sometimes uh, we have to see how this develops after COVID, but before COVID, you had a lot of corporates that were driving some of these events. Corporates are very difficult to work with as a startup, specifically as an early stage startup or even later stage startups. So large corporates are very difficult to pierce through. So you have to be careful and considerate who do you want to engage with because you know, you're going to lose time and invest a lot of resources with larger companies which may not be the best use of your time and the best mm -hmm. allocation of your resource. And why do you think that it can sometimes be difficult to work with large corporates? As a it's just a big mismatch, right? I mean, you have a large company, you may have to sign agreements, you're not ready. You may have to prove to them that you meet certain requirements from a production point of view. Let's think about, um, you know, food replacements for me. Uh, for example, you know, or all these uh, worms and so on that were being launched. It's very difficult <laughs> to get into Migros or Coop, right? With uh, like a novel product of a plant-based burger or something like this that is not very common. So I think that's a challenge for companies. Also, while corporates in Switzerland always say they want to innovate and they have all these innovation departments and, and sometimes they're trying to spin that off, I have yet to see a corporate who's really serious and is liberating these innovation people from the constraints that the larger organization has and puts on them, right? I mean, I haven't seen that yet because many companies have a lot of money and they really would like to innovate, but then they keep these people in environments and they keep the startups in environments in, in never-ending loops to do yet another proof of concept or yet another, uh, you know, discussion with some other team you know in, in these large organizations and you never get to do anything that's interesting that you say that because actually a couple of episodes ago i had 
Lars, who is actually an innovation coach, and he worked on innovation project in Swisscom for many years. And one of my questions to him was, is it really that these big corporate companies are actually really into innovation or is this just something that is kind of nice to have, you know, just to check the box, okay, we are doing kind of an innovation. And he was actually quite confident. He was, you know, praising a lot, large corporations. And then he was saying also these large companies, they have also a lot of resources, so they can do a lot of innovation. So it was interesting to hear his point of view, but I also do agree with you as well. I mean, at least from my limited experience that sometimes this innovation is just something to say that we have innovation project. It's not that you have a lot of freedom. Maybe in earnest, they want to do it, but they lose themselves with the same kind of burden that they have for the rest of their business and startups are just not ready for that. Let's talk about types of funding for, for those people who are in corporate jobs and who don't know much about startups. Can you explain what are the early uh, sources of funding? So angel funding versus early stage venture capital funding. And how can people, you know, get started? How can they raise money? Should they maybe self-fund at the beginning, then approach angel investors or go to VCs immediately? Well, I mean, in general, you can really divide the world in angel environments, right? Where you ask your friends and your family and, uh, and fools generally refer to for money in order to get started and maybe reduce your workload or leave your job, work on your idea or your project. And then soon thereafter, you can maybe find angels. So once you've depleted your savings or you have asked for other people to help you survive for another few months, then you can find angels and angels write tickets anywhere from 50,000 to 300,000 or maybe a million, you know, that would be a big angel ticket that does exist to get you started and really work on it. And then after that, you would come to someone like us, like CVVC. Um, now we are in blockchain, but there's other people that do early stage funding. They specifically limit themselves maybe to companies that have raised less than 2 million or want to raise up to 2 million or maybe 3 million, typically probably at a valuation below 5 million, you know, between 3 and 5 million, the valuation then at this point, so that actually investors get a significant chunk, but also not like have a crazy cap table. And then after that, you would go to more and larger, larger funds. It's a big challenge right now because many funds collect fairly big tickets. So, so many funds are fairly large by now. And then they start to invest in later stage companies most of the time because it's too complicated for them to invest in smaller ticket sizes and in, in smaller companies because it's a lot of work. You know, VCs need to do a lot of work at that stage in order to increase the likelihood of success for such an early startup. And that is a challenge in the environment because then the funding for early stage really moves away and goes to later stage and larger companies. And that's a fact. And in Switzerland, there's not that many VCs to begin with. So, and now with the few that we have, if they start raising bigger tickets and if they move beyond early stage, there's so the gap developing again. What would be then the difference between angel investors or VCs? Because sometimes VCs also invest smaller tickets. And then you said also that angel investors actually can invest up to 1 million. So how would you then choose if you would go to angel investor or to a VC? Yeah, I mean, sometimes you are not so early, but you're so immature that you need to rely on an angel investor, right? I would maybe say the difference between an early stage VC and an angel is that the angel is willing to live with certain shortcomings. So, you know, maybe an incomplete team, the angel just believes that this is a really good idea 
and the team is not complete or the business model is not quite clear. Uh, so angels tend to have a higher tolerance for ambiguity, I would say, even in an early stage we see as a kind of a, a theme and a topic and a thesis that they follow. So angels are probably a little bit less discriminate. But of course, there are also angels that basically say, I only invest in video games in a certain type of environment, for example, or maybe video processing or image processing, and that's all they do. But I would say typically angels are a little bit broader in scope and they are willing to live with more ambiguity and probably more immature you know, setups of these companies. They're willing to take also more risk in that sense. Yeah, they are taking a lot more risk, of course. And on the other hand, there is also a disadvantage. They get stake in the company so early that then eventually... Of course, it, it pays off, of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you start out and and an angel maybe, which I actually, I like, you know, raising with convertibles. We, we recommend that as well. So we do this with a convertible note. So you don't give away too much equity. But of course, the early invest or an angel has a huge upside, despite the fact that... Uh, you know, that you can still somewhat control your company. Would you say that it's helpful to have uh, an angel investor on board when you're talking to VCs or that this would be an, a disadvantage? No, I, I don't think so. I think in general, you just should have a somewhat normal cap table, right? I mean, if you have a lot of people on your cap table, that may scare VCs away. I don't think having an angel on your cap table is, is a disadvantage. It's a disadvantage to have a badly organized cap table. For people who are not so well-versed in the startup scene or who are just starting out, how can they meet investors? Meeting investors, I mean, these days is very difficult, but uh, I mean, there's a number of angel networks in Switzerland. Now, I don't recall, but I think there's two really large ones, or I don't remember what their names are. Then there are very specific investor networks like SIGTIC uh, in um, financial services and then ICT, I would say. The best way to find investors is to look at companies that kind of solve similar problems that you're solving or tackling similar industries and see who invested in those companies, right? And then mm -hmm. identify the investors uh, because that's relatively easy to do, right? Mm, that's uh, very clever. Understand, yeah, understand who, who invested and then approach those investors, you know, on a fairly personalized basis if you're an early startup. But if you are a little bit more mature and you're looking for a larger round and you are ready to speak to VCs and maybe corporate VCs, well, then you should industrialize the approach. You have to have the basics in place. You have to have a short presentation. You have to have a one page or you have to have maybe a longer presentation. Maybe you have to have a few case studies. If you have early successes or POCs that you can have a, a phased approach when you start working on these connections and when you have initial interest that, that you can always keep the conversation kind of going with something relevant. Would you say that investors are usually open? Because I can imagine that they get pitched all the time, different ideas. In your experience, do you think they're open to review your pitch deck or to hear your idea? Yeah, I mean, in my experience, absolutely. In my experience, I see a lot of people that are open to talking and connecting with individuals and early stage founders. I mean, I also answer, well, we were in crypto, right? So at times, 
during the boom days when then LinkedIn becomes very tedious and very demanding for us. It was crazy in 2017 and 18. So that was difficult to reply to people. But in general, you know, investors do reply to LinkedIn requests. But of course, you have to have a, a good sentence or two or a good pitch, you know. Please don't write really long emails and don't write really long texts also in these LinkedIn requests or LinkedIn communications that you take up because uh, nobody will read that, right? You have to be really concise and, and very brief. And do you think that people should also create a business plan or just a simple pitch deck? Well, I think th there's not that many people that would read a business plan, but of course, mm. I think it would help you to write the business plan. I mean, the startup, the founders, it helps to write the business plan. It doesn't have to be super elaborate, but it does help to sit down and really think about what it means to be active in an industry and what are some of the USPs that would differentiate you from other people and how big the industry is. That's a helpful exercise. You can write that, uh, that's good, but I doubt many people will read it. So you should have a good pitch deck. You have to have a rough financial plan, of course, that is realistic on your cost developments and assesses you know, your top line opportunities in a realistic fashion. But it's more the mechanics that is important for the financial model, not so much the actual numbers, because mechanics meaning, you know, is it realistic to charge this price? Is it realistic to gain so many customers within which period of time? That is important, but it's much more important to understand how then these revenues flow through your company and where you would use these funds because your top line will change dramatically anyway. You don't know how this is really going to happen. You don't know how fast you are. Typically, uptake is much slower than you would you anticipate. You know, working on a financial model and saying that that's what you're going to achieve before you get funded and before you have serious product out there and you have some really good experience with certain segments of the market or with certain regions, you know, where you want to be successful is not very useful because your financial plan will change dramatically anyway. But you have to have the mechanics down, right? What does it mean if I sell? this much to such type of customer how would my cost basis develop what can i afford what can i not afford when do i make certain investments that is valuable to have i we had this discussion recently with someone who did a discounted cash flow model for a startup that has a little bit of traction and uh, no investor will take a discounted cash flow model into serious consideration to support the valuation for example right i mean you the valuation is based on other items, the size of the market, how quickly can you capture market share, you know, how fundamentally different is your idea, how revolutionary, how quickly would corporates take it up, and, or what is the B2C segment that you can target and where you can realize quick gains. Those items are much more important than detailed financial projections and discounted cash flows. Before I move to my next question, I wanted to ask you also about startup incubators and accelerators, because I think that's also one relevant topic and also a nice option for startup founders. Mm -hmm. What is in your eyes the main advantage of going through startup incubation? Maybe you can first explain what it is and then what's the advantage? Yeah, so I would say there's really a small difference between what is a incubator and what is an accelerator, right? An incubator is where you come with a relatively raw idea and a raw team, not necessarily, but typically, and you come into an environment where people, mentors, coaches, investors, help you sharpen your business model, your value proposition, 
sharpen your understanding of what it would take from a technical point of view to implement what kind of team members do you need in order to be successful? These are the kind of conversations that you have and the kind of lessons that you take away from an incubator. And in an accelerator, typically you're a little bit later stage. Your product works. You have an MVP. Uh, well, you're probably past an MVP. You may have some of the first customers. You've proven that it works. And then a certain company in an industry vertical or maybe a very large supplier, like, uh, by the way, Microsoft does a lot of acceleration these days. They would have a cohort of companies in a specific area that they think that their clients can benefit from startups. And, you know, they would take you into that cohort or into this program and then basically either see what they can do with the company inside themselves or with third party and clients. And in an accelerator, of course, there you can validate your pricing models. In an accelerator, you can validate your assumptions. How quickly can you deploy? In an accelerator, you can understand more about what you would call the buying center you know how do these people tick that you speak to what does a particular buyer or a particular engineer when she speaks to you what is her frame of reference you know now that she has been in this industry for such a long time so those things you take out of an accelerator it does make sense but you shouldn't overdo it again now covid related is a little bit more difficult but of course there are a lot of accelerators there's a lot of incubation happening. If you are very good, you know, you can get into all of them, right? That's not a problem. The problem is it takes resources for you to actually apply and go there. And it's a challenge to continue developing your business if you are busy in such environments continuously. Occasionally, that's good. You shouldn't fill out your year or like a half a year with a two or three accelerators just because you can. I don't think that's going to make you successful. There is one, I would say, very relevant topic for startup founders who are not technical. So usually, you know, if you come up with a startup idea and you have business background, and when I say startup idea, I mean with a technical solution to a problem, mm -hmm. then the first thing or the first uh, obstacle that you face is that how do I build this product? Because I'm not a developer, so I don't know how to build this product. So there are a few questions that I want to ask you about this situation. So first of all, what should they do in this situation? How do they meet developers? And my second question would be, is this something that would be uh, very important for investors when they choose to invest in startup or not, if there is also technical co-founder in a startup? In certain environments where you have a lot of entrepreneurial activity and you have kind of this culture, you can find your co-founders in meetups, you know, in industry-related environments, maybe in associations, maybe if you're in a corporation today and you would like to do something, you know, join associations which are forward-thinking that you think that have members that are interested in changing the industry, you do find founders, you know, and co-founders in these environments. There's also some databases, actually, that's a good point. I think Techstars and some of these other accelerators, they do have kind of like open exchanging platforms where you can look for co-founders and, and I am aware of companies that have found their co-founders like that. Uh, you may find your co-founder through potential investors that will just say, hey, you know, I, we've met. If you talk to VCs and so on, even they may not invest in you, they are still interested in helping you with their network and make referrals. There's a good chance that, uh, that this is possible. People have found their co-founders also on LinkedIn. Now you find just like you would prospect for a sales um, opportunity or for employees. So if you're in a corporate environment, uh, you can do the same thing for co-founders on LinkedIn. That, that's for sure. 
And what do you think about hiring outsourced team to actually build your product? Because I think yeah, this is becoming also more and more relevant. Yeah, I don't think that's a problem. You should do that. You have to think about the value proposition, of course, that you're offering your clients and what do you want to give external and who can do certain things. But for sure, for certain mock-ups, for example, uh, graphic mock-ups or certain simple tasks around apps, etc., there are really low-cost opportunities and low-cost options to pursue and you're much faster than if you think you would put that in the hands of a co-founder who is probably more of an architect. And do you think that this would be something that VCs would actually consider as a problem that they would then maybe, you know, be hesitant to invest in a startup that doesn't have strong technical team or that outsource technical development to other teams? Because I think mm-hmm. we invested in a startup that outsourced their development, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. Yeah. You know, VCs would like to see traction. You know, I mean, if you do that, you have to show traction. But then at some point, yes, it becomes a critical question who owns the ip and you know can it just walk away and can it just be copied Um, but that's a problem that you know many companies have uh, all the time anyway i wouldn't say it's a problem if you do certain things with, with outsourced environments specifically if you live in switzerland and yes you may have friends who have acquaintances or they can even help you with doing certain things the problem is for the same amount of money that you spend in switzerland you can hire three times as many people in the Ukraine, you know, for a first version or for some early stuff, uh, that's probably good enough. I also had a startup founder in one of my previous episodes, and he told me that they have actually hired a team abroad and then they were working for them for several months and they kind of tried also to integrate them in their team. And he said that they had to implement various procedures like, you know, daily stand-up meetings and and things like that. But but he was actually really satisfied with the work that, that they've done. And now, you know, I mean, we see that it's possible to do everything from home. So in the end, it doesn't really matter where your developers sit. That's true. That, that, that probably never played a role, but you occasionally you then have to meet the people, which is what is frustrating at the situation today, right? At some point you yeah. have to meet people. It's just you develop a different relationship and you can implement uh, differently, right? Yeah. And Ralph, you also speak at a lot of events and you moderate a lot of panels. You're very active in the space. You also write a lot of content. In your personal experience, how does this affect your personal brand? And does this also help you later on when you do business? Uh, the fact that you are so visible in the space. Yeah, it's good to be visible in the space, of course. We don't just do it for self-promotion, right? I mean, we do it because we want to bring crypto and these potentially really life-changing and society-changing technologies, you know, world-changing technologies to a broader audience. This is why we are also so focused uh, on outward. And the other reason, of course, why we do it is because, yes, we do want uh, more deal flow, right? We would like to see more companies ask us for investments. That's a big motivation for us. For me personally, of course, it's very satisfactory because I like talking to people and I like giving the opportunity to other people to shine where they are very good at and where they can impress other people and where they can really bring something to the world. So when I prepare panels, I really don't try to have very general questions without the context to the individuals that are on the panel, right? And to the companies that they're they're representing and to the problems that they're trying to solve. That takes a bit more time usually, but it's also very well, you know, received by the panelists uh, to really bring out these small points that are so important and kind of illustrate 
the larger goal and the larger importance of what they're building. I think that's the key. And that's also what makes a panel interesting. I get a bit frustrated from time to time when I attend panels, when they have quite general discussions about certain industry developments that for that, you don't need to attend the panel, right? And it's interesting to be at the panel where when founders speak, lay open why they are in the space and how they are trying to change this and what are some of the most demanding challenges that they're trying to solve with their priorities and that is kind of the the nucleus and and what is really important and do you have any advice maybe or tip for other startup founders how can they you know maybe create more content or get more visibility Uh, yeah i mean producing content for social media although i have to admit i haven't done for example the medium article in a long time and i have to revise some of my old ones uh, to be honest It does help when you write for social media, specifically if you write something that has a bit higher quality content than just an opinion piece, you know, that kind of like gives you visibility and and gets you up in rankings. You can do that too. That's part of a strategy, of course, uh, to bring investors to your company or to bring clients to your company. But it does help as a mental exercise to write really higher quality content. doesn't have to be long, but, you know, well thought out, uh, structured content for a Medium article or, or maybe for a Hacker Noon article or something like this, that does help because it really sharpens your understanding of what the value is that you bring to the community or to other people that then read this, right? You have to ask yourself, is this really relevant? If I write this paragraph like this, is that kind of clear what we are trying to achieve? Because you live in a bubble and you have to break out of this bubble. Otherwise, you cannot you know, touch the masses, so to speak, right? And the larger audience. It's worth mentioning that you are actually one of the, or if not the only author of our top 50 report. That's true, but many people contribute uh, to the success, <laughs> of course. If you want to check out the CVC top 50 report, you can go to cvc.com slash top 50. And this is a report about top 50 companies in Crypto Valley. So Ralph, we are now almost at the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask you, about your top three tips for people who are right now in corporate jobs, but who want to start a project or who have a business idea, but they don't know how to start. What would you recommend them how to get started? I think it's refreshing if you're in corporate environments to really sound your idea with other people, whether that makes sense. That's sometimes difficult if you have not been in an environment. So in such an environment and you met people. So I would recommend as a first item to really sound your idea with people from outside your company and within the industry that you want to deploy this, but you may have to reach out proactively and find these people. So I think that is important. That would be one priority. Second priority is if you really want to start the company and you want to go to a startup, it is really a different world. You are constantly resource strapped and there's nobody else that typically can help you. Most of the time you have to do things on your own and yourself or your co-founders have to do it. And that is a state that not everybody enjoys on a long-term basis. So I think it would help if you want to determine whether you want to do that or not, it would help to do it on a trial basis, so to speak, you know, so find someone who really wants to pursue this uh, with you and maybe, yeah, write a pitch deck or write a one page or sound out your idea and then write a POC proposal or something like this in order to see whether this is really what you want to do. And the third item I have been in corporate environments for 16 or 18 years when I think back. I've been in corporate environments in all kinds of jobs at all levels. 
And you may find out that actually you still like it and there is a reason why you joined the company at some point. And then you should try to find a pocket in this company. If it's a large company, it's easier. If it's a smaller company, it's more difficult. But try to find a, a pocket in this company where you can engage and where your skills and your experience in the industry is appreciated and you can really affect change. That may be as invigorating and as interesting as starting your own thing. I would not give up on your company immediately. I have one last question related to that. Actually, people can understand, you know, the difference between startup and corporate environment unless they really experience it, you know, because when you are super enthusiastic about yeah. either starting a startup or joining a startup, then you're thinking, oh, I wouldn't mind, you know, if we have less resources or, you know, if I have to do more work. But actually, when you're there and when you experience this, you know, sometimes you even remember, you know, when I worked in my previous company, I had exactly. teams for everything. Right now I have to do everything by myself. So there's a really a big difference but in your experience because you mentioned that you work in a lot of corporate jobs how would you describe the biggest differences between startup world and corporate world except from a lack of resources yeah of course i mean you have a lot less restrictions and you have a lot less hurdles right you don't have people that say no to you all the time except for the people that you're trying to sell something to otherwise typically in a startup environment nobody will tell you this is a crazy idea but in general, you can have more ideas and you can try out more things. I think that's really the biggest difference. But again, you will find that also in startup environments, 30% to 60% of the work is tedious, boring, have to do work. And that is not different in a corporate environment either, right? That's really important to see. And of course, in certain companies, well, I was privileged, of course, to work in a few companies that had very strong growth. And so there was a lot of opportunity to move around with this growth. But still, I mean, there may always be an opportunity to do something else and more different, you know, than what you think is possible. Inside of the company, yeah. Inside of the company, yeah. Good. So, Ralph, thanks a lot for sharing your views and your experience. And guys, I hope that you enjoyed listening to this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to my channel to get notified when the next episode comes out.